cut the mic when a guy goes off the rails. Oh my, Alabama. I've known Ryan for 11 years. I can't think of a better guy to lead our college students. He's awesome, comes from a great family. Uh, don't quit your day job, be a stand-up comic, but that was good, that was good. If you're wondering why I'm in a good mood, this is my favorite day of the entire year. As of right now, the Detroit Lions football team is undefeated and tied for first. <laughs> it's a great morning. It may not be a great afternoon, but it is a great morning. We're talking about self-talk. Uh, the constant narration you have in your head that plays 24-7. Psychologists say that's what defines you. It will define your success. Um, people hire sports psychologists, multi-million dollar industry. Uh, my Kung Fu instructor said yesterday, I went up to him, he's a practicing Buddhist. I said, you just made my sermon. He said this to the class. He said, uh, self-confidence cannot be given. It must be taken. I can't bestow on you self-confidence. You have to take it. And so the psalmist dealt with this. Remember last week we did Psalm 103, what is positive self-talk based on the loving kindness of God. So many of you have come up and said, hey, I've been looking up uh, every morning and just thinking about the loving kindness of God, that it goes beyond the heavens. That's awesome. Uh, but what happens when your self-talk goes in a different direction? What happens when your self-talk starts to go south and goes south about matters of faith, goes south about the goodness of God? Here on September 11th, our country was rocked. As Christians, we had a lot of explaining to do. Do we believe that God is good? Absolutely. Do we believe that he's powerful? We sure do. But yet, where was he on 9-11? You better believe our critics hit us with that. Well, some of you are experiencing your own personal crises. Some of you have a family member who's chronically ill. Some of you, the economy, uh, you still have not recovered. And it's getting serious. You, you've exhausted your finances. Some of you have children who are wayward or in rehab. Um, some of you are lonely. You, you've been single and you've prayed for a, a spouse, prayed at least to have somebody that'd be interested in you. And you look to God and you want to believe he's good. You want to believe he answers prayer and yet you are stuck in this moment. And the self-talk continues. We're going to take a look at a very interesting psalm. It's Psalm 73. It's not written by David. It's written by Asaph. Asaph was a choir director of David, and he has written Psalm 50, and he's written Psalms 73 to 83, and he became a bit of a prophet. He started a group called the Sons of Asaph, which were a combination of artists, poets, who would come together and they would proclaim God's wonders. And as a quick aside, boy do we need that today. Today we need sons of Asaph. We need artists to come out of our midst. We need poets. We need um, individuals who are good in writing, in um, architecture and sculpture, right? Not only to help us conceive of God, but if we speak to the world, then we need to let our artists be artists. We need to have complex characters. It doesn't matter if a movie is in downtown Brea and gets really bad scores on Rotten Tomatoes. That is not a victory. We need complex artists that can present sin, God, justice, redemption in really complex ways. We need sons of Asaph. Well, that's what Asaph did. He was a choir director. But Asaph went through a period, like a lot of the psalmists, where he had negative self-talk. He wanted to believe the best about God, but was really struggling to do it. So let's take a look at Psalm 73. 
And he starts off this way. Surely God is good to Israel. He begins with an affirmation that he's struggling to believe is true. Welcome to Christianity. We do want to believe that God is good. We do want to believe that God is present. We want to believe that all things work together for good, right? But sometimes the evidence seems overwhelming in the opposite direction. And Asaph is about to um, struggle with this. But then he says, for the pure in heart. See, if you're not fully committed to God, you're not going to experience what Asaph experienced. If you're not all in with God, then you don't really care that he doesn't always come through. If God is just something you do periodically, and you're not really fully committed to him, you will not get the frustration of Psalm 73. Asaph was all in. And some of you have gone all in with God. You are trying to the best of your ability to make Jesus not only your Savior, but your Lord, and you thought you'd get a lot of blessings from that. You thought God would be pleased. You thought your life would look a bit different because you've gone all in. Asaph is all in with God and he looks around the world and he's seeing things that deeply trouble him. What's he seeing? This is what he sees. But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Look at that. My feet came close to stumbling. He was close to walking away from God. And rather than stuffing those emotions, Asaph gives voice to those emotions. So let me say something that I think is kind of controversial. A lot of people thought so the first service. I always appreciate when people come up to me. Um, If you do not feel the freedom to voice anger towards God, you will always have a stunted relationship with God. If you don't feel the freedom to bring God into the process, then you'll always have a stunted relationship with God. Now, we know from marital communication, when a couple says, yeah, we don't argue anymore, that's not necessarily a good thing to say. I want to say to a couple, why don't you argue? Do you feel like the relationship isn't strong enough to handle it? Do you feel like that person will reject you if you have a disagreement or an argument? Listen, based on Psalm 103 that we looked at last week, you're secure with God. His loving kindness for you is as high as the heavens. As far as the east is from the west, your sins have been removed. You can say to God, God, I believe you're good. I know you love me. I just don't feel like it. And where were you yesterday? I mean, there are psalmists who say in the sacred scriptures, Jehovah, we went in battle in your name and we got slaughtered yesterday. Where were you? One psalmist says this, God, wake up. Why don't you see what's happening to your people right now? If you don't feel the... Now, I'm not talking about being belligerent towards God. But if you don't feel the freedom to say to God, God, I am just angry, then I think you'll have a stunning relationship with God. By the way, newsflash, he's omniscient. He already knows it. He just wants you to have the freedom to voice it. And I think we'll see. Asaph feels the freedom to voice it. He's a choir director. But there are no pains in their death. He's talking about the wicked. I don't get it, Asaph is saying. Why don't you deal with the wicked? They are prospering. Uh, There's no pains in their death, and their body is fat. I love that. They're just, it's all excess with the wicked. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like all of mankind, right? I would get it if the wicked did stuff and you zapped them. That would make sense to me. But they are prospering, and we're struggling, and yet we're your chosen ones. Pride is their necklace. They don't hide the fact that they're wicked. They're proud of it. 
The garment of violence covers them. Their eyes bulge from fatness. The imaginations of their heart run riot. Listen to, me. Listen to contemporary music today, right? Certain forms of music, certain forms of art. It's like they delight in being um, um, anti-Christian. And when I was in grad school, I, I studied rhetoric. So we can have visual rhetoric. We had to study one thing called piss Christ. It was a, it was a crucifix submerged in a vat of urine. And we had to analyze the rhetorical messages of it. And I'm like, I'd hate to be that artist, right? I mean, that's our thought is, man, I'd hate to be that person. That person won major awards for it, that per- right? So we look at that and we think, how do you get away with this? Why does God allow the wicked to get away with it? That's what he's struggling with. They mock and wickedly speak of oppression. It doesn't take long reading the Old New Testament to know God cares about the oppressed. He cares about the poor. He cares about the unfortunate. James is going to absolutely challenge us when we get to it in two weeks. Um, What is true religion in the sight of God? I ask my students that all the time. What do you think is true religion in the sight of God? And I'll let James answer that question, but it is linked to our view of the oppressed. God cares about the poor. The wicked don't care about the poor. They mock the poor, and they speak from on high. These aren't uh, individuals who don't have power or status or prestige. These are people who speak from authority, and they're mocking the very thing that God says is dear to his heart. They have set their mouth against the heavens. They say, how does God know? And is there knowledge with the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked Always at ease. They have increased in wealth. Hey, they know they're the wicked and they don't apologize for any of it. They're the wicked and they say, God, I bet you don't even know what's going on. And if he does know, he doesn't care. And we look at those individuals who say, listen, you need to be very careful because a lightning bolt is coming, right? But no lightning bolt is coming. That's Asaph's problem. Where is the judgment of these people? You know who this individual is? This is Robert Ingersoll, lived in the 1800s, one of America's finest orators. Uh, One pastor called him a poor barking dog. Another pastor called him the champion blasphemer of of America. There was a chief justice of Delaware in the 1800s who who convened a grand jury to try to convict Robert Ingersoll of blasphemy. He had a sign outside of his door that said, Notice, I don't need salvation. He would go to public functions like um, fairs and stuff like this, and this is what he would do. He became famous for this. He would stand up and say, I am a wicked man. I don't believe the Bible. Here's what he would say about us as Christians. Look at this famous quote. If a man would follow today the teachings of the Old Testament, he'd be a criminal. If he would follow strictly the teachings of the New Testament, he would be insane. So Robert Ingersoll would get up at these fairs and he'd say, I challenge God to strike me dead in 20 seconds. 20 seconds, strike me dead, I deserve it. I don't believe he's good, I don't believe he exists, I'm a blasphemer, strike me dead. I challenge him to do it right now. As Christians, what do we do? We move away from him. It's like, okay, whoa, hello. But this is what he would do. He would count in front of the whole audience. One, two, three, four, five, six, Seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen. And we're like, you should not do that. And yet he would say, why? Why? I'm still here. So there is either no God or he doesn't care that I'm wicked. You pick. That's Robert Ingersoll. And we're like, oh, that just makes me mad. That's Asaph. 
Right? Look what Spurgeon says. Remember I mentioned him last week. He's the prince of the preacher. Spurgeon said this. While many saints are poor and afflicted, the sinner is neither. He is worse than other men, and yet he is better off. He plows the least, yet he has the most fodder. He deserves the hottest hell, and yet he has the warmest nest. That's Spurgeon. But Ingersoll, oh, so he died a tragic death, right? Oh, that's it, God, right? No. He's considered one of the finest American orators, right on par with Mark Twain. He was married, uh, very faithful to his wife, and had two great kids and went on to be very successful business people. Wow. That's divine justice, right? And so people were mad in America. They wanted to bring him up on charges. So that's the frustration of Asaph. You have to feel his frustration to know how to get out of his self-talk. So let's do some modern equivalents to what maybe will get us. Uh, We know from conflict theory that you have conflict between you and another person because you feel like an injustice has been done. I've been wrong, disrespected, uh, trust has been violated, and that produces conflict. And so long as the injustice is there, the conflict is there, well, that's Asaph. These people are uh, skating by. So here's some modern equivalents to what might get our um, sense of injustice. Uh, Do you know who that is? Brock Turner, Stanford swimmer, who was raping an unconscious woman, and two Stanford students came by, saw him, tackled him. He's caught red-handed. He's brought up on charges, sexual assault. Uh, The DA recommends uh, 10 to 14 years. Uh, The judge gives him six months because he doesn't want to ruin the man by sending him to jail. By the way, if you've never read the letter of the assault victim, her identity has been protected. She wrote a letter to be read in the jury, for the jury, for the judge. Uh, It is heartbreaking to read this letter. So the judge, thinking, I don't want to ruin this young man's life, gives him six months. He only did three for good behavior, and he's already out. A sense of injustice. By the way, people have signed a petition. They're trying to remove him as a judge. A law has already been created that would give stiffer penalties, mandatory jail sentences that Governor Brown's going to sign within the next month or two. So people were angry. How about this? Colin Kaepernick choosing to... Oh, listen to that groan. (laughs) ASAP would be there. Welcome to my world, right? So here's Colin Kaepernick deciding to kneel during the national anthem. Let's not be so hard on him. He's not the first one to do this. Jackie Robinson, who we'd say is one of our civil rights icons, in the 1960s in his autobiography said, I never sang for the national anthem. I was a black man in a white man's world. I could not sing that anthem. But Colin Kaepernick has chosen to do this to draw attention to the plight uh, that he feels is important enough to do. Now, how you feel about that, welcome to the world of ASAP. If you feel like that is incredibly disrespectful to the people who have died for the American flag, and why does the NFL let him do that, then you feel the frustration of Asaph. Now, let's take a look at one more. Do you know who this is? This is Ethan Couch. Uh, Age 16, he was drunk, three times the legal limit. Uh, He was driving a car he shouldn't be driving. He lived in a house all by himself at age 16 because his parents were wealthy enough to do it. Uh, Some good Samaritans had pulled over to the side to help a broken down car. Ethan was three times the legal limit, plowed right into him, killed four of them, and seriously injured two. Brought up on charges and um, uh, in front of a judge. And the lawyers gave what is now called the affluenza defense. The affluenza defense is this. Ethan was brought up with parents who didn't teach him right and wrong, was so spoiled that he did not have an intuitive sense of right and wrong. Thus, he should not be judged guilty. Guess what? The judge bought it. 
He never served jail time. Listen to what one person said. I thought this was interesting on the internet. Affluenza, a get-out-of-jail-free card for the rich, famous, and anyone who can't, can't afford a high-powered lawyer. Welcome to the frustration of Asaph. I'm looking around at this world, and it doesn't seem like there's a good sovereign God that's kind of running things. So my heart was embittered, Asaph said, and I was pierced within. That word pierced, it hurt when I look at the wicked mocking God, mocking the oppressed. Then I was senseless and arrogant, ignorant. I was like a beast before God. I didn't know what to do with my anger, Asaph said. So what do you do when you're in that moment? One, it's okay to be in that moment. Don't stuff it. Don't walk into this building and say, oh, God's good all the time. Right? Walk in this building and say, I'm hurting. Uh, Things are not going well. And I want to believe the best about God. I'm struggling to do that. It's okay to be in that place. Many psalmists were in that place. First thing to do. Uh, feed forward is anticipate your communication, what it will do to other people. But notice what he says in verse 15. If I had said, this is how I'm feeling, if I would speak thus, behold, I would have betrayed the generation of thy children. So listen, I'm a Biola professor, right? So I'm not going to stand up in front of the freshman class and say, hey guys, I know you believe God's good and I know he's going to be there for you and I I encourage you to pray every day. I just got to tell you, some days it's just a real bummer. Uh, (laughs) Hello, God just doesn't seem to always come through. Hello, hair loss. No, it's like, (laughs) what? So I'm not going to say that to the freshman. I would never say that to the freshman. So Asaph is simply saying, listen, be careful who you say this thing to. But do not read into what Asaph is saying. Do not read into that you shouldn't talk to anybody. I have some friends who I can talk to. Uh, John Lundy is one of them, Ryan's dad. I can sit with John, and, and I, Beekner, he's a theologian, said this, you've got to have people in your life that you can give them the unedited version of your life. The unedited version. But that's powerful. To sit with friends and not be shamed. Oz Guinness wrote a book called Doubt. He says, here's what we do with people with doubts. We shoot them. We shoot them. We say, oh, you shouldn't feel that way. God's good. Oh, sorry, I didn't realize that. Oh, yeah, God's good. Can I write that down real quick? I'd forgotten that one. God's good. All things will work together. Well, okay, I just wish God would kind of hurry up. You know what I mean? It's like, hey, I'm fr- I need somebody in my life that I can sit down and the person doesn't. Aren't you the interim teaching pastor at Evie? Yeah, I am. And I, there's things I wrestle with. We have to have that kind of freedom with each other. Otherwise, it, it will spiral into negative territory. I, I once debated a man. His name is Dan Barker. He's one of the top atheists today that travels. Uh, here's what's funny. When I was with Crew, Campus Crusade for Christ, they would spend all this money bringing in Josh McDowell, William Lane Craig, J.P. Moreland, and then they would have no money left. They'd bring in Tim Yelhoff, right? <laughs> I, I was the guy. Let me give you gas money and pay for your hotel guy, okay? So Dan Barker, right, debates everybody. Well, he's at West Virginia University. Uh, I get a phone call one day from a crew uh, movement that has no money left. And they said, hey, Dan Barker's agreed to debate you. I was like, I was a theater major, what, let's send in the thespians because our major philosophers. What? what? 
So I prayed about it, and, and God said, I want you to do this. So I did. I, I called Dan Barker. We were negotiating whether we we're going to do this. And I said, listen, I will do this based on one condition. He goes, what? I said, we need to have dinner before the debate. If we can have dinner, I'm in. He goes, all right, done. We'll have dinner. So I sit across from Dan Barker, um, and he said, I said, tell me your story. He said, you know, I used to be a child evangelist. I go, you used to be a child evangelist? He goes, yeah. He goes, but then I started to read books and had doubts, and no one would talk to me. I went to my parents. I said, you know, I kind of have these doubts. And they said, listen, you need to pray more and stop reading those kind of books. I went to my pastor, and he said, listen, don't fill your mind with junk. You need to read the Bible more. And he said, so I stopped talking to anybody, but I kept reading Nietzsche and Sartre and other atheist thinkers, and I walked away from the faith. So if there's no one to talk to, your negative is going to spiral out of control. Find somebody that won't judge you. And that's hard. The higher you move up in leadership, the harder it is to find somebody. But you all, we all need to have somebody that, that we can say, hey, can I share a heretical thought with you? And it's okay. And, and thank God, the best thing about Biola University, the collegiality among faculty is really unparalleled. And I really do have friends that I can sit with and say, man, I'm just struggling, and they won't judge me. We all need to have that. Second, here's where I think we're missing it the most. This is what Asaph had that we don't. Asaph says this in verse 17, I came to the sanctuary, and then I perceived. But he had a place that was holy, a place that was sacred, and it, it changed his perception Men and women, here's what concerns me the most. I don't think we have that today. I, this is an auditorium, but I, it needs to have a sacredness to it. Now, how do we do that? I think we're poorer because we don't have it. So listen to this Eugene Peterson quote. I think it's fascinating. Peterson said this. Comprehension of the invisible begins with the visible. My wife and I lived overseas for a year with Campus Crusade of Christ in Lithuania. We got a chance to tour. We went to many cathedrals, unbelievable places. You walk in these cathedrals, you were like... No one had to say, shh. No one had to be there to go, shh. You were just like... I don't think we have that today. I don't think we have a place that we go, that we feel the presence of God. And remember what Peterson said, the visible helps us imagine the invisible. So what do we do about this? I don't know, but I think we need to wrestle with it. I think it's good to be relevant. I think it's good to be contemporary, but it can go too far. And let's not sell millennials short. Millennials are the product of multi-corporations and advertising 24-7. They are the most marketed group there is in America. I don't think they want to be necessarily marketed to. I think they want a sense of the divine in a world that is secular. So what can we do to do it? So I'm going to make, I'm going to make some suggestions, okay? So you tell me what you think about this. We're going to do an experiment for the next couple of weeks. I want you to change something next Sunday. Um, last week I said look up. Now I'm saying look inward. Something, make it different when you come here next week to remind you of what we're about to do. To sing to God, to hear his word be proclaimed. So I don't know what that looks like. Uh, here are a couple examples. One, 
So I'm from the Midwest. I'm not from California. Here's what I noticed about California. It seems like everybody came, many of us. It's like I'm going to either go to the beach or church, and most likely both, and I'm going to leave for the beach right after church. So what we could do, one thing you could do, is up it one level in how you dress. One level. And again, we're not going to judge each other, right? If the best you have is the best you have, that's fine. We're not judging each other. But it's something you would do to think, you know, I'm about to do something. I wouldn't go to the opera and dress a certain way. So maybe I'm going to increase it one level. Another thing. Um, Now listen, this is me. Oh my goodness. You can't sit through church without a decaf vanilla latte. This isn't the dark ages, okay? I love my decaf vanilla latte. But I just wonder if it puts me in the right frame of mind. I just wonder if it does. As I'm drinking it thinking, oh, you see, I would have liked a little bit more vanilla. And it's already a little bit cold. Oh, and God's holy. <laughs> so listen, let's, so maybe next week you don't come in with a hot drink. Now, let's be kind to the well. They're great people. So after church, everybody goes and gets a cup of coffee and takes it home. How about another one? Um, you're not late. Right? Hey, by the way, at the theater, you're not allowed to be late. In a Broadway production, you don't get in. It starts. They don't let people in late. Now, listen, if you have small kids or extenuating circumstances, if you have toddlers, listen, we don't, we don't care. Remember, we're not judging each other. So, listen, you come in late. We applaud that you're here. Toddlers is like turning on a blender without a top, okay? We are glad you're here. If you read the Bible on a smartphone, if you read the Bible on a tablet, why not come with a leather Bible? Again, we're changing it up so that I'm thinking, boy, what I'm about to do is significant. It needs to be different. Okay, now, we're not judging each other. In other words, next week, you sit down next to a person who's in flip-flops, cup of coffee, and reading the Bible off a smartphone, you are not committed. Right? We're not doing that, okay? But let's do something different. So here's what I'm going to do. From now on, sermons, um, I'm going to do two things in every sermon from here on out. Halfway through the sermon, I'm going to have you pause for a couple minutes and ask the Holy Spirit, what are you trying to communicate to me? We're just going to take a time and pause and let the Holy Spirit talk to us. So come prepared to hear the Holy Spirit. And I'll just pick a point in the sermon and say, invite the Holy Spirit to inspect your heart. Then, whenever I pray, we're going to stand up as a congregation. I'm not going to jump into prayer. Eugene Peterson says we rush into prayer too quickly. We're going to stand up, have a moment or two of silence, just to recognize, hey, we're about to engage God. And then we're going to do that. That, That's two things I'm going to try to do from up front. But all of us, let's look inward. What's one thing I can change? Now, if you're perfectly fine and you connect with God every single Sunday, you don't need to change a thing. But let's just think about this and pray about it. Then uh, this will improve your self-talk. Keep in mind when it comes to the lost, to the wicked, to a sinful world, God's two great attributes are patience and loving kindness. So look, look what he says in Ezekiel 18.32. Do I have any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, rather that they should turn and live. You know what God would say to Ingersoll? Here's what he'd say to Robert Ingersoll as he's doing his 20 thing. God would say to Ingersoll, Robert, if you think you can exhaust my loving kindness in 20 seconds, 
you do not understand who I am. If you think I will stop loving you because of your petulant little outbursts, then you know nothing of my love for you. So let's, let's us have that charitable attitude towards people. God does not delight in the death of anyone, uh, especially the wicked. He, it breaks his heart. It ought to break our heart. Second, patience. Peter, um, Peter was having to, de- they were proclaiming the second coming of Christ in Second Peter, and people were mocking him for it. And you can get that. They're, they're saying, hey, get your house in order. Jesus is coming back. And they're saying, and he didn't. Yeah, but he's going to, but he hasn't. Yeah, but it's really imminent. I'm betting it's not, right? And they were getting frustrated. Peter had to have a nice reminder to the, uh, his church. This was a traveling letter. He says this, the Lord is not slow about his promise. He's coming back, as some count slowness. But it is patient, it is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish but for all to come to repentance. Men and women, God puts up with the garbage of this life. And he sees it 24-7. He puts up with the garbage that happens. Do you know 3,000 kids die a day in Africa? A day in Africa because of malaria. And God puts up with it. He puts up with sex trafficking. He puts up with terrorism. Why? He wants the church to have one more day to proclaim the gospel. And he will put up with it because of how much he loves humanity. And God will say to the wicked, I am patient because my children are going to present my love to you. Now you will be judged on what you do with that love. But do not think that I'm easily impatient, that I retract my love from a fallen world. Then he says this, nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You have taken hold of my right hand. With your counsel, you will guide me, and afterward, receive me to glory. Remember last week, Psalm 103, I said, I made a big point about the listing of the benefits. When the psalmist says, let me think of the benefits, and then I made a big deal about the ordering of the benefits. Remember, it starts off with all your iniquities have been forgiven. Uh, your, the curses have been dealt with, but that was God's displeasure. Um, he's going to redeem you from the pit, and he's crowned you with loving kindness and compassion. Then he's given you good things. I think the importance is really important. Uh, the Lord's Prayer when you get to daily bread. So God is saying, don't flip the list. Asaph, don't flip the list. So Asaph, am I with you? Yes. Am I guiding you? Yes. Do I love you? Yes. Don't flip the list. We as Americans flip the list all the time. And by the way, James is going to want to hit this as hard as anything in his letter. He's going to want to say, this American dream is killing you guys. It's making you think of God in really bad ways. And so we're going to have to visit what we think it means to be successful in the United States. This is the key of the psalm for me. Besides blank, I desire nothing on earth. Now listen, C.S. Lewis said at this moment you're like parrots. You know what the right answer is. You just don't live it, is what Lewis would say. So, what you put in that blank will determine your happiness. What you put in that blank will determine your self-talk. It will determine if you believe God is good. Now, if we were honest, and, and again, God knows your heart. He knows my heart. Besides blank, I desire nothing on earth. Well, come on. I, you know, I, I, I have a book I want to get published. Uh, there's cer- certain projects I want to do. I want to have healthy kids. Uh, I want to have a a good marriage. 
I know it's supposed to go in that blank. I'm just not always there. Right? Especially when it comes to my kids. How many of you have a working contract with God? It's never been verbalized, but it's a working deal with God. Here's my working deal with God. You don't touch my kids. Right? The health of my kids. You don't touch my kids. The Mielhoff kids don't die in a car accident. The Mielhoff kids don't uh, drown in a swimming accident. That's my unspoken deal with God. And God's like saying, Tim, you can't do that. You can't have that kind of deal. So what goes in the blank? Here's what Asaph says. You do. Besides thee, I desire nothing on earth. Oh, wow, really? 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 Tim, you're a Biola professor. Well, thank you for reminding me that. I know, but really, there's a lot of other things I want in this life. Book of Job. Book of Job. God says to Satan, take it all. Take it all. I give you everything Job has. Everything. And let's see if he loves me for me. (gasps) What? Book of Job. So I had this weird thought. I'm going to end with this. I had this weird thought. It kept coming back. All right, the most overrated Christmas movie ever, ever, It's a Wonderful Life. Without a doubt, it needs to be 20 minutes long. We don't need to go through the piano scene. 20 minutes long, get your wings, we're done. Let's have some open presents. Most overrated thing in the history of Wonderful Life. Best thing ever, 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 The Grinch Who Stole Christmas. So I kept thinking about this. So The Grinch thinks he's done it. I've ruined Christmas. Why? I took all their gifts. I ruined it. And now he's sitting up there with his dog. And he goes, oh, I can't wait. They're all going to find out. The Christmas presents are gone. And then the people of Whoville come together and start singing. What? And this is his reaction. Let's watch this video. So men and women, what is God's message to the most affluent country in the world? What is God's message to the most affluent church in the world? Why do you believe I'm good? Why do you believe I'm good? To answer that question will determine your self-talk. Can't be how many people go to this church. Can't be your grade point. Can't be your level of status. Can't be whether your marriage is great. Can't be whether you have kids who started a nonprofit and dig clean water wells, right? God is saying, America, American church, why do you believe I'm good? Because I protect you from terrorism? Right? Because you have your health? Can't be that. James will answer that question. It's got to be Calvary. Not that he doesn't answer prayer, and not that he doesn't heal, and not that, that he doesn't intervene. But that's not what this psalm's about. This psalm is about what's your self-talk when it appears like he's not doing anything. So men and women, we need to answer that question this week. Why do you believe God's good? And what's the one thing you want out of life? What is it? Not what you think the answer should be. C.S. Lewis, pray what's in you, not what's supposed to be in you. Have an honest moment with God. So let's close in prayer. Let's stand.
Father, we're humble that we have your attention right now, that you listen to our words and to our hearts. Father, we thank you for the blessings of this country. But let us not judge your goodness on those blessings. We thank you for answered prayer, but we do not judge your goodness on how prayers are answered. Father, I pray for the people in this church right now that are struggling. Their feet are stumbling. I pray that they would be aware of your nearness, of your loving kindness, that they would find someone that they could talk to. Thank you that when you look at us, it's as if a father is looking at his children, that your loving kindness exceeds the heavens. Father, I pray for us this week that we'd prepare for next Sunday. You'd prepare our hearts, that we would come in expectant to hear from you, that we'd get a sense of the sacred. Thank you that we get to call you Father. We don't take that lightly. Thank you that we get to pray in Jesus' name and we're aware of what had to happen to him, that he was crushed for us. So, Lord, we love you. Help us to deal with our self-talk, to look inward, to embrace your loving kindness, to not judge you by the lesser, but to judge you by the greater. We do pray this in your son's name. Amen. Amen.